Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we bring you the most interesting and compelling news in seafood. I'm Editor-in-Chief Drew Cherry, joined today by Executive Editor John Fiorillo. We are back after a hiatus and we have so much to talk about uh, and not a lot of time, so we've decided to drill down on a couple topics that came out this week um, that, uh, that have possibly some, some big implications. Um, and, and we're going to start with climate change because uh, obviously that, uh, that hangs over all of our lives and it's increasingly um, causing changes that we can see now. It's not abstract. Um, just today, there was a, a major die-off reported down in Chile uh, by the Chilean salmon farmer Multi-X, which is now partly owned by ag conglomerate Cargill um also part owned by a Japanese uh, group Mitsui um it is just the latest in uh, climate related losses for the salmon farming industry in this case it was a lack of dissolved oxygen and uh and we've seen those as well as algal blooms taking quite a toll not just in Chile but um around the world around salmon farming regions so in Norway, in Eastern Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand in particular. So, you know, I think what we are, are seeing now is we're seeing a, the beginning of, um, of a reality that can't be escaped, and that's that um, transitions may need to happen sooner rather than later, either on land or offshore. Uh, John, uh, your take on this, I mean, we've seen a lot of these over the past several uh, months and years, and it seems like with recurring frequency, um, what do you think this is going to mean? Well, um, you know, you you mentioned at the outset that uh, climate change isn't abstract anymore. We're seeing it, you know, in so many facets. And that just got me thinking, you know, you and I have been reporting on this for a while. I'm, I mean, it's, you don't have to go uh, back very far in time to um, – to a time when there was no mention of these mass die-offs related to warming waters or whatever it may be in uh, annual or quarterly reports of these salmon farmers. You, you, it just wasn't in there. But now it's just, you know, part and parcel of almost every quarterly report and annual report. So just to emphasize your point, yeah, the, we, <laughs> there's no waiting for climate change. We're We're in the midst of it. So as it relates to salmon farming, I mean, um, yeah, I think it's just obvious, isn't it? I mean, this is going to be an ongoing situation. You know, salmon farmers already have to deal with uh, sea lice and <clears throat> other issues that they have to uh, plan for and set aside money to take care of and mitigate. And this is uh, just this is just another in that long list. Now. You know, there there's a certain group of people who will say, well, you know, yes, now we got to trend. The only way out of this is, realistically is to transition out of, you know, traditional net pens into, you know, maybe offshore where the water's uh, cooler or maybe on land where you don't have to worry about the temperature. Um you know, we've we've been in that uh, scenario kind of now for uh, several years, and 
you know, offshore is still unproven and it comes with a lot of risk and a lot of investment. So that's not happening tomorrow. And land-based, <laughs> I don't know if you want to go into this, but I mean, the recent performance by not only Sapphire, but others in that um, world is is not good. It's not filling me or investors with a lot of hope right now. So where does that leave us? Yeah, I mean, it, just going to the losses that that uh, companies are, are facing, just to get a sense of how urgent this is, uh, New Zealand King Salmon uh, recently when it released its uh, its results, um, said that it was going to, to need a, a, a around a $40 million U.S. rights offer um, to shore up the operations because of the losses that it had related to uh, climate change. Uh, major die-off hit them. Um, uh, Movie Canada uh, also in their results uh, commented on this in Chile and, of course, in Canada uh, as I mentioned, um, loads of losses over the past uh, over the past second half of the year. So y- you know you are seeing companies not just lose a little but a lot. Um, and investors have to start asking questions um, about that. Uh, they have to begin to uh, demand some some answers and some some potential ways to mitigate it. Um, and there's interesting concepts and ideas. A couple of years ago, Petuna, um, which is a, uh, a salmon farmer uh, down in uh, down in uh, Australia, uh, they said that uh, they were looking into a breeding program where they could, for example, have climate resistant farm salmon. So there, there's going to need to be some some uh, some unusual uh, and creative solutions here. Um, but some of them could be genetics. But as you say, I think right now, uh, more obviously are changing where fish are farmed and how fish are farmed. And that's not easy. That requires a lot of capital expenditures. Um, yes, let's talk about land-based salmon farming uh, in a moment because uh, it was uh, it was in, in our headlines this week. Um but offshore as well, um, Salmar Akarosian, uh, their new project to move projects or to move farming offshore. Uh, some of the uh, Norwegian companies' um, uh, massive um, offshore projects or subsea projects, some just concepts, some that are, have come to fruition. Um, those did seem a little pie in the sky, and now suddenly. It's starting to look like when you weigh the losses from these algal bloom and low dissolved oxygen issues uh, against the expenditures of building these operations, the calculus looks a little different. Um, so I think that's that's one area to me that uh, that that does that maybe had seemed that the industry had looked at um, a little bit as further in the future, maybe even than land-based, the, the conventional uh, salmon farming, middle-of-the-road salmon farming sector uh, has been saying, well, okay, we'll take a look at land-based maybe, you know, slowly over time, they've kind of, they've, they've sort of 
admitted that there is a future that they, it can supplement traditional net pen farming. And the industry itself, I mean, they're under no illusions that, that there won't be a need to move operations at some point or change the way farming happens. I just think they aren't expecting it to happen as, as soon as it's likely um, going to. Yeah, and how do, how does anybody know, right? I mean, there's always talk about when it comes to climate change, there's always talk about the tipping point where all these things that we are seeing in relative slow motion <laughs> uh, accelerate. You know, these uh, we Drew and I are out in the Pacific Northwest, and, you know, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, just a few years ago when you never had uh, a smoke season or whatever you, you called it earlier, Drew. But, you know, the, in the summer months now, the fires in Canada and British Columbia or the fires in California or the other side of Washington State have become so intense and so large over a period of weeks that you can be in Seattle and the air quality can be, you know, just horrible. I mean, it's, you know, pink sky and uh, smoke everywhere. So um, as it relates to salmon farming, I mean, we're seeing these, you know, warming waters and the subsequent mortalities and they're happening. And, you know, but you just have the feeling there's going to be a moment where, such a big one happens that it just tips everything on its head, you know, and I'm hoping that's not the case, obviously, but it feels like that train's coming down the track. Yeah, I mean, and I think we've had incidents that have been in, whether it's northern Norway or in Chile, that have been devastating. Um, but I don't think that the, I think mitigation has been sort of the the solution um, and there's certainly some interesting ways to, to mitigate um, algal blooms and um, some of the low dissolved oxygens. There's micro bubbles and there's different skirts you can put around the, uh, the net pens. But, you know, again, ultimately is that sort of a, um, you know, that can sort of stem the bleeding a little bit. But uh, if you're looking longer term, it's not going to get cooler, um, at least not anytime soon. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it suddenly makes some of these technologies more, uh, more, uh, more interesting. Now, that said, um, this week, uh, our colleague Anders Furuset in Norway did some reporting on a couple of projects. One, obviously, Atlantic Sapphire, the, the leader in the sector. Um, all eyes are on Atlantic Sapphire. It's, it's the one that has the financing. It's the one that has arguably the most expertise um, and, uh, you know, is actually getting its project built, uh, in Miami. Um, it has had a string of issues over the past year, um, multiple issues that I think have, have scared investors. Um, and, uh, and I think that, um, that coupled with sort of the global fear of a, of a recession, have dragged down Atlantic Sapphire significantly to uh, to lows to to share price uh, lows now, um, and you know it's it's not surprising perhaps, but the CEO uh, this week in an interview with Anders um, was very very bullish about the project, but they are likely going to need to raise more money. Um, things have ended up being more expensive than 
than the company thought. Everything from um, you know the, the latest in their mo- most recent update was concrete, that there was uh, concrete uh, shortages and um, just everything with price inflation is getting more expensive. Um, and so there's there's it's more than likely analysts believe that there is going to be uh, a need for mm, upwards of you know another 70 to 80 million to complete this next phase of the company's project. Now on the other side are all these projects seeking financing and the challenges that they're facing, even ones that have um, a lot in place. you know we uh, we wrote about Aquacon that um, has the the land already set aside in Maryland has some good relationships with a local university, um, has had uh, investors uh, coming in with, with small funds, however, notable investors. Uh, the Dutch feed giant Nutreco uh, is one of them, uh, the Norwegian equipment group Akva. Um, so it, it, has, uh, it has people that believe in the project. Now, that said, um, Akva, who is uh, an investor and supplying the equipment, uh, took the order for that project out of its books because they just don't know when uh, the project's going to get built. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I think there's still belief in land-based production. Um, It's just what I feel is we're starting to see investors get a little more wise uh, about what the real risks are and being maybe a bit more selective in where they uh, put their uh, funds and maybe a, a bit more due diligence is going into uh, into these projects. Yeah, I well, I think so. And, you know, there's some people will argue that the share price of Sapphire now, uh, as low as it is, is probably the realistic share price of it, given... Um, what they've produced so far and where their projections seem to realistically be headed. So, um, but yeah, I, I mean, the land-based sector to me is, I mean, it's crashed back down the reality. I, I mean, it just, I just get the sense at this moment in time, and I'm sure it's going to change because technology generally saves the day. Um, but I, to, to scale it to the level that people initially thought it could be scaled to based a lot on the enthusiasm of Sapphire, um, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure it can scale in that sense for quite a long time. Um, I, I hope I'm wrong, but it just feels like the, there's there's a lot of smaller land-based operations that are, you know, they're not producing a lot. Well, none of them are, but they're, they're not trying to scale to these exorbitant levels that, you know, Sapphire and some of the others claim uh, they want to. Um, and those seem to be working, but there's some point where you try and go so big that it just seems it's, you know, one problem after another. Do you remember Sea Monkeys? Do you ever have those as a kid? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So maybe that's Send what away we for them. Yeah, maybe that's yeah. what people need is, you know, just a personalized, small land-based operation that you can put in your bedroom, and then when you're ready, you pull the fish out. 
So it, I think it is the scale that's the is going to be the issue. Um, I think now, like I said, I think everybody recognizes there's going to be uh, there's going to be land based salmon production. They'll figure it out uh, at some point, and maybe what we are talking about here with climate change, maybe that does put a little more wind in the sails of these projects. But, you know, I, there, there's been a couple of projects now that I think you could essentially call dead. Um, and I, I believe that, again, there was this gold rush, hundreds of projects that uh, had planned on producing, you know, X amount, Y amount, um, that I think as the tide has gone out on some of those projects, it's been pretty, pretty clear that some of them really had no plan. Um, they, they just kind of saw that this was uh, an exciting, it, it, it had, an ex, it had excited investors and there may be a possibility to get some, uh, get a piece of that money. Um, but I think now we're starting to see uh, projects like uh, Samergies in uh, Iceland um, th those where you have a private company that has a lot of money uh, and has the land has in, in Iceland, they have the benefit of having thermal, uh, you know, a geothermal power plus water that's already warmed. Um, they've got a lot uh, on their side. Um, and you're just seeing some of these other projects that have um, maybe larger companies that that are actually linked to the seafood supply side of things. So actually gearing up to have a funnel for the product into the marketplace um, versus just on the equipment and supply side. But you're, you know, you are seeing companies recognizing uh, whether it's genetics, uh, Benchmark has signed some agreements with, uh, with Aquacon and I think just today with a, a Swiss, a small Swiss uh, land-based uh, salmon farmer as well. So companies recognize feed and genetics and suppliers all recognize this is going to be um, a big market at some point. Um, I just think there there is there's a reality settling in that it may not be as quick. Um, and I think among investors that didn't really necessarily know quite what they were getting into, maybe realizing, oh, okay, this isn't an overnight success. Uh, this is going to take time. Um, and then, you know, uh, as I said, there may be some different thinking that, um, that, uh, semi-closed containment, um, subsea offshore, that some of these other technologies that have not been discussed near as much as land-based salmon could be exciting and even more exciting right now and could be more viable, um, Given uh, given the way that um, that people need to start moving operations, yeah, but in the way that the investor community, you know, arguably got stung here by land based in the sense that their investments don't really seem to be paying off. I mean, have you lost that audience when you now try and talk about? you know, semi-closed, closed containment, submersible, all those other ones you just mentioned. I mean, that's that's a question I think that is still uh, open at the moment. But, um, you know, investors could be, uh, uh, they could be a sensitive bunch. And, you know, when they run, they tend to run in packs. So 
I don't know. It's 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 just interesting to see. But the beautiful thing about salmon, as opposed to some other species in our universe, is if you're looking at a species with lots of technology investment, you know, lots of study, lots of research, and just a lot of energy going into making it better. Um, salmon be the one you'd be looking at because uh, the the technology developments over the last half a decade alone have been amazing yeah i mean you can't say that it's not making uh money you know we just got the first quarter results from all the major salmon farming companies and they are uh they're pulling in record earnings and the prices continue to be high even when the prices fall or quote-unquote crash they are crashing to levels that are still close to record highs so um that will not last forever but um but cheap salmon those days are gone you're not going to be able to get cheap salmon so there's there's a strong business case there's just a lot of uh, a lot of questions about it but there are um yeah as we said there may be no there may be no choice so uh let's discuss a, another interesting uh story john you reported this um you know, there's been, um, I guess you would call them, the negative word is ambulance chasers uh, in the United <laughs> States. And the United States, of course, is a very litigious country. Um, and what you will often have are, are class action suits by um, legal firms that specialize in class action suits. And they'll look for opportunities. And so they'll they will find the problem uh, and then work their way back to find somebody that it affected. So you'll see things, for example, like uh, underfilled tuna cans. So someone will look into that and say, okay, you know, there was maybe one ounce. Well, not that much. Let's say a quarter, a sixteenth of an ounce less uh, in a can of tuna than than is what on, what is on the label or something to that effect. Then they'll go find somebody that can be the person that complains, and then they'll send out uh, mails and and uh, put up websites to get more people to join that class action suit. Ultimately, the benefit the beneficiary ends up being um, the attorneys, and if you win, maybe you get a twenty five cent check or something like that. So anyway, that's kind of the background of how it operates, but. Um, in terms of the substance of it, John, talk to us about this case. This, this, uh, this attorney has actually won a similar case. And so, um, just set us all up of what's this particular case about. Yeah. So the law firm is the, uh, Richmond law and policy firm, and, um, they've been active exactly as you said, uh, creating these class actions, against seafood companies, largely based on the allegation that their claims of sustainability on their packaging are deceptive. Uh, they, they, they have different shades of gray of that, but that's basically what all these suits um, are about. So um, they right now, the one we're talking about most recently is um, they're suing Aldi, the retailer, uh, claiming that its salmon is uh, not sustainable because it's farmed in quote-unquote industrial operations down in Chile. Um, but the interesting thing about this is this uh, they brought similar lawsuits, as I said. They brought one against Maui uh, over their duck trap um, 
uh, smoked salmon, similar similar uh, allegations, and Maui settled with them for 1.3 million, if I recall correctly. I mean, a, a, you know, a sizable number, right? Um, so at the time, I remember you you saying, "Uh oh." You know, that's a bad precedent to set. And um, I, I agree. I, I think that may have emboldened <laughs> this law firm to continue because since then, uh, more recently, they've uh, sued um, Gorton's, the, the fish stick uh, brand in the U.S., um, for similar things that the tilapia that they, they sell you know, uh, breaded tilapia and things like that. The t- tilapia that they're selling is raised, you know, in non-sustainable ways in Asia and wherever. So uh, this is what they're doing. Now, the interesting thing I found in this current Aldi case is when I was reading it th- uh, the other day was um, there was a mention of the uh, Global Seafood Alliance's um, a BAP sustainability eco label um and the judge uh global seafood alliance wanted to submit an amicus brief in support of aldi um saying you know we have this eco label and it shows that these fish are raised sustainably the the judge just dismissed that out of hand basically and said no i don't i don't need the amicus brief it really isn't gonna do anything here and that just got me to thinking like wow what is the level of protection that an eco label would give a company if it was in this very situation and we can't quite judge yet because um this case isn't done and the judge did leave an opportunity for the brief maybe at a later stage but if we just look at it right at this second, it doesn't seem that an eco label is is a shield at all. Um, if you get involved in in a legal case that is centered around sustainability, it, it's just interesting. I'm going to do some more work, and because I don't know if the MSC has ever been uh, in in this situation with their label, which covers wild fisheries uh, as opposed to farm, so. I don't know. I just, I just found it interesting. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because I think over the years we've talked about to what extent eco labels are responsible for protecting the companies that uh, they have certified or the fisheries that they have certified. And that's a very, that's been interesting to watch. I think there's been an evolution on the part of, uh, I think there's been an evolution on the part of uh, the MSC to get more active. You saw them weighing in when uh, the Seaspiracy, uh, well, of course, they got criticized in that documentary as well, but you saw them weighing in on that. You've seen them weigh in on other allegations of overfishing, um, You've seen the MSC get more active in actually protecting uh, and defending the fisheries when they get attacked. But when it comes to individual branded products and what protection uh, an eco-label affords and what it actually means is quite interesting because I think that's, um, does it have any actual meaning in the marketplace 
and I'm wondering, um, yeah, to what extent you'll see um, MSC, ASC, BAP get involved in protecting or trying to defend particular products as sustainable. That seems difficult because um, I think, you know, the judge said that to a layman, the BAP logo doesn't really mean anything. Um, which is interesting because I don't think that to a layman, most of these product, most of these labels mean anything because you can put all kinds of labels on a, on a product. So to me, it continues to be a, a you know, B2B, um, uh, issue, not a, not a B2C issue. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that, um, I, I think there's, there's a, a danger here about how much these certification groups get involved in politics or involved in legal cases. Um, the MSC is, of course, they got involved in the uh, Northeast mackerel debate where the uh, several countries are, could not agree on, on quota sharing. And uh, so the MSC pulled those certificates because of that. That is quite, uh, it is tied to fisheries management, of course, um, but at the same time, it, it is kind of a, you know, it's a political stand and the MSCs come out um, and criticized uh, politicians for not being able to come to agreement on those stocks. So, um, yeah, it, 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 it does raise a lot of questions about what role those certifications should have. Should they be hands off? Um, I think Russia has been an issue as well. We've certainly uh, press the MSC on that and where, where they would stand on products that are certified uh, to the MSC uh, labels that are sold by Russian companies. And they've kind of said, well, that's not really our problem. We don't, we certify the fishery. We don't, uh, you know, look at the geopolitics, which seems, mm, that seems like a very, uh, that it's a difficult, uh, a difficult, um, you know, um, needle to thread there so yeah yeah you know in the case of um in the case of aldi here this most recent situation um i'm, I'm curious about the motivation of uh global seafood alliance to to even request to file that brief and uh, you know i i think uh, i'm going to assume that aldi may have asked them to do this but I'm not really sure. But let's, for a moment, assume that. Does Aldi's perception of that label change after this um, case? I don't know. Probably not. Like you said, it's you know these labels have been B two B currency for since they were born, and none of them have ever leapt in, into the consumer mindset to any significant degree. And I don't. I, I know. Uh, G, uh, Global Seafood Alliance is going to do some re outreach to consumers this summer, I think uh, they mentioned. Um, but, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know how much money they have, but I don't think that's going to move the needle. Uh, MSC has been trying that for a lot longer and they, they haven't moved the needle. So I, I'm just curious if this changes the perception of the label for some of these uh, retailers or anything like that. It probably won't, but it just struck me as like, what was the motivation there? Why did they jump into this 
this, um, you know, this case. I mean, it's not a frivolous lawsuit, but boy, it's, you know, it's close to being one of those, I would say. But anyways, I mean, I, it's, there's plenty of lawsuit. Like you said, once a, a, a law firm sees that there's some money to be made and they've clearly found in the seafood industry that, wow, this term of sustainability, uh, that is one that we can go after. Um, and it's pretty easy, again, I think for a lot of judges to, once you start using some of the language and just talking to a judge about aquaculture, it's really easy to uh, to cherry pick uh, information and um, and and pretty pretty quickly have a judge say, yeah, wait a minute, what does sustainable mean? Does this does this really rise to that? So I think we can expect to see more of it, and I think probably it will pivot over into wild fisheries as well. So it's going to be interesting. See, like you said, it, see these. This is how a lot of these things have have built over the years, as you and I know, and we've covered them as it's a small off the radar thing. And you think, okay, well, whatever, it's a, uh, like you said, a frivolous lawsuit, maybe. Um, but then it suddenly builds and, and you see um, when people start settling and when people start to recognize, hey, wait a minute, this is all over, uh, all over packs in, in, uh, in the US and Europe, and we can probably go after each and every one of these companies um, and uh, and get a little bit of money out of them. So yes, let's see. So we're going to wrap it up there. Uh, as I mentioned, we're in New York City uh, next week on May 25th. First time we have been in person uh, for our investor forums in two years, or has it been three years? I don't know. Feels like a lifetime. At any rate, we're looking really forward to it. It's going to be really different for us because we are going to have uh, salmon farmers uh, there um, both, you know, I mean, conventional people doing offshore, people doing land-based, so across the spectrum, genetics. So we'll have uh, Atlantic Sapphire, Salmon Evolution Benchmark, Selmar Ocker Ocean that we mentioned earlier. But then also, uh, we're really looking uh, more broadly at this event into some of these new and exciting uh, technology areas. So cellular seafood, plant-based seafood, two issues I know, John, that are close to your heart that you've covered for a long time and been pointing out that they're going to uh, be a big part of the sector. Well, guess what? They are, uh, thanks to a lot of funding coming in. So I'm really excited to to hear from from them um, what they think and, and from an investor perspective, because we have some investors there to hear um, what they think about those technologies. And then we have other, uh, other folks that are, um, that are uh, in alternative feed ingredients that are in um, you know, other aquatech sectors, AI, etc. So it's going to be really interesting uh, because it's bringing together a lot of different worlds. So I'm excited. There's still some time to register if you want to. Uh, you can go to intrafishevents.com and check that out. Uh, also, also uh, make sure and visit intrafish.com. We have a new newsletter, the Supply Lines newsletter that's being produced by our colleague, John Evans. Uh, it's great each week, John, uh, rounds up uh, issues in shipping and logistics that are impacting seafood. Uh, it's great. John's covering it closely, and, uh, and it's going to be a great way to keep on top of all these, uh, all these hiccups and, um, and issues that are, that are reshaping things. So 
Well, thanks for joining us, and we will look forward to talking to you next week.